Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Before we dive in, lightning quick announcement. Just want to say I'm going to be doing a public event here in New York City on Monday, November 18th at the Rubin Museum from 7 o'clock to 8.30 if you want to come say hello. It's in celebration of a new book written by my friend and colleague Jay Michelson. The book is called Enlightenment by Trial and Error. I haven't read it yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be really good about his own personal experiences in pursuit of enlightenment. Jay has been on the show a couple times. He also is in charge of the excellent talks section on the 10% Happier app. So this is going to be a really fun event. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can go to rubenmuseum.org slash events. All right, let's get to the show. Uh, our guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, and he was recommended by a previous guest, Adam Grant, who's a renowned author and psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. So Adam, thank you for making this recommendation because it turned out to be great, as you all are about to hear. David is also at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. He is one of the youngest people to be appointed to the faculty at Penn Medicine, where he's an assistant professor of medicine in uh, translational medicine and human genetics. He's also the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. Castleman disease, you may not have heard of it, is a pretty scary disease, and David happens to be a sufferer. Um, he's been dealing with this disease since med school, and this is an unusual episode for us because we don't usually do medical mysteries, and that's certainly what David's story is all about. He's just written a book called Chasing My Cure, in which he endeavors to cure this this little-known disease, uh, which uh, has been afflicting him. The reason why I wanted to have him on is that even though he's really just in the beginning stages of his own meditation uh, career, is that in dealing with this extraordinary health crisis where he has nearly died four times, had his last rites read to him with his family surrounding him, he has come up with some guidelines, some lessons for living that are scalable to the rest of humanity. One of them is living on overtime, which I'm particularly intrigued by. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about that and and his other precepts that he's developed as a result of this ordeal. Also, uh, stay tuned for the for the surprise entrance at the end of the interview. Uh, we, we invite his wife, Caitlin, to come on and, and share her views, which is also incredibly interesting and moving. So without further ado, here is Dr. David Fagenbaum. So at what point did you know things were dicey on the health front? So I, I was a healthy third-year medical student, never had any medical problems in my whole College life. College athlete. College athlete, played football at Georgetown, and um, was treating patients um, at the hospital that I was a medical student at, and all of a sudden just started having night sweats and fatigue and I just wasn't hungry. I had some abdominal pain, and, and it, things. I wasn't that sick yet, but I had this sense that there was something really, really bad that was happening to me. I, I didn't know what. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, I got more and more tired, and, and unfortunately, just kind of started noticing fluid was accumulating in my legs and just strange things that didn't seem normal. So I went from a medical school exam that I took, and then I went walked down this down the hall to the emergency department, 
And um, they did some blood work and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are not working. We need to hospitalize you. And that was the start of what was a, a frightening six-month period. Tell me about it. Yeah, so they, they hospitalized me, and I became really, really sick really quickly. I had a retinal hemorrhage, went blind in my left eye, gained about 50 pounds of fluid. I um, had liver failure, kidney failure. I was on dialysis, all with no diagnosis. So I went from the healthy medical student to all of a sudden literally dying in the ICU that I was a medical student at. Wow. And um, I, I was so sick that actually uh, the doctors encouraged my family to say goodbye to me and encouraged them to, to kind of prepare for me to die. So they called in a priest. Did that happen? They called We said goodbye. They called you in a priest. You said goodbye to I said family. goodbye to my family. I actually said to them, goodbye to them three times. And then a priest came in, read my last rites to me. And um, unfortunately, you know, we, we didn't think that I was going to survive. Um, but right around that time, they did a procedure to diagnose this mysterious disease. Um, it's called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. And they started me on chemotherapy right away. And the chemotherapy kicked in just in time, and I, I survived that first deadly episode. But unfortunately, I've gone on to have multiple relapses. And so just to be clear in my own mind, the three goodbyes happened in that first episode or happened no, multiple I kept relapsing, times? Multiple yeah. times. Um, post post getting the exactly this is just this is just number one exactly and so what's that just on the first time you're saying goodbye to your family that that most people don't get to don't live to tell the tale quite literally Um, what tell the tale what's like what's it like in your mind when you are you think you are convinced you have been told you are dying you're saying goodbye to your parents and your sister yeah it was it was frightening um it was uh I, i was so sick that i um, my, my brain wasn't working all that well because of the kidney failure. So my, my thoughts were not totally clear, but I, I remember being terrified. Was that a blessing? I, I think so. I think that, and, and each time I've, all five times I've almost died, I've, I've been so sick that maybe, maybe that is a blessing that maybe I haven't I've been able to think so critically. But I do remember there's one thing that, that has been burned into my memory. And that was after the last goodbye and kind of, I settled in thinking that, you know, I had hours um, I remember looking back on my life and thinking about my life and, and what I had done, and I didn't regret a single thing that I had done or that I had said. I only regretted the things that I had not done, had not said, and that I wouldn't be able to do in the future. One of those was that um, my my girlfriend or the person I dated for a few years, we had actually broken up just a, a few months before I got sick. And so as I kind of settled in, um, thinking that I would die any time now, I, I regretted that I hadn't fought for our relationship. I regretted that I hadn't told her how how I felt. And um, uh, and that was one of these regrets that, you know, I wish I had done this. And, and when all of a sudden the chemotherapy saved my life, I kind of promised myself that, that I'm going to live this life where I think it, do it was my motto, where it's like, I'm not just going to think something about how I feel about someone or about wanting to do something. If I think it, I'm going to do it. And um, and Caitlin, now my wife, we ended up um, – I, I told her how I felt. And um, despite all that I was going through, we got back together. But there's a scene in the book where you actually – I mean you describe it in quite granular detail where you were, your belly was distended because you had excess fluid. You had yep. lost your hair from the chemo. And she's sitting next to you on your bed, and you're wanting to get back together, but thinking, you know, you have a kind of kind of legit body dysmorphia yeah. going on. Can you just walk us through that scene? Yeah. So at that stage, I had spent almost six months hospitalized. I had nearly died three times in that six month period. I had multi organ failure, 
and I had just started to come out of it. I was now out of the hospital and, um, and Caitlin was there with me and it's the first time she'd seen me since I had first gotten sick. And, um, I wanted with everything inside of me for us to get back together, but I didn't want her to know how badly I wanted it. I wanted her to know that, that I loved her and that I wanted us to get back together, but I wanted this to be her decision. And, um, I remember, uh, you know, saying, you know, are you sure? But, you know, I, I'm so sick. I don't know what, what my future is going to look like. And I remember this look that she gave me, which was like, are you crazy? Of course, you know, I want to, I want to do this. And, and I thought to myself, I think you are crazy. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, th- that you would want to, you know, get back together in the midst of, of really what was a frightening period. And But you, you said something that struck me that the, the you it's when you're sick, kindness is nice. Yeah. But it also when you're really sick, this kind of kindness of somebody, uh, ex-girlfriend getting back together with you, yeah. you really start to fear that she's doing it out of guilt. You worry. Absolutely. You worry it's out of guilt. You worry that it's to kind of make this dying person feel better about what they're going through. Um, but Caitlin managed to make me feel like that was not why she wanted to get back together. And, and she's kind of demonstrated that since then, but that was my fear at the time. I didn't, I, I didn't want this to be kind of, you know, just to make this dying man feel better. What is this disease? It's idiopathic. Multicentric Castleman disease. Yeah. It's multi, multicentric Castleman disease. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's basically kind of like a cross between an autoimmune disease and a cancer. So basically your immune system gets completely out of control and then begins to attack and shut down your vital organs. So your liver, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys. Rare? Very rare. About 5,000 patients diagnosed each year in the U.S., which is about as common as ALS. So it's it's rare, but it's it's maybe less well-known than other diseases that are similarly rare. Uh, I actually didn't know ALS was that rare. Yeah. You hear about it a lot. Exactly. Because so you start it's so, thinking it could happen to you. It's so devastating. I mean, yeah. ALS is such an awful disease, and we, we need so much more research for it that I, I'm so happy that there's been so much awareness for it. And unfortunately, there are also diseases like Castleman's or idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, also quite deadly, also rare. Um, but man, do we need to push forward our understanding of it. So you say you got back together with your then ex now wife after the third time you nearly died yeah. so then she was with you for two more for two more near yeah. death yeah so at that time i was started on an experimental drug that we all hoped was going to be the treatment for my disease and that it wouldn't come back and so i went back to medical school i finished my third year of medical school caitlin and i were together during that time and then while on this experimental drug, I had another relapse. So I was back in the hospital with all the organ failure. And at this stage, this is the only drug that was in development, the only drug that's actually ever undergone development for my disease. And I learned from my doctor, who's the world's expert, that there was nothing else coming down the pipe. There were no promising leads. And there was no one doing any sort of uh, promising work to get us anywhere. And so I remember turning to to my now wife and my dad and sisters who were in the room with me in my hospital room and and I told them, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to cure this disease. And I was so sick at the time that I think they were kind of like, okay, Dave, you know, I, sounds good, but like, let's just get through this. Um, but that was a, a commitment I made. I survived it. I got seven agent chemotherapy. So it's a combination of seven of the worst chemotherapy drugs out there. But that obliterated my immune system and it saved my life. And so I, I survived that. But now I, I knew that there was... There was no hope. If I if I wanted a cure, if I wanted a future with Caitlin, a future for my life, then then I needed to turn my hope for a future into into action. And and so I left when I survived thanks to chemotherapy. 
I left the hospital on a mission, and I've been running full speed after this disease since then. What, how much progress have you made? We've made a lot of progress. So actually, um, so when I was when I first became ill, there was no diagnostic criteria, there were no treatment guidelines, there were no FDA approved drugs, and today, um, I, I, well. Since then, I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, and then I began conducting research on my own samples at the University of Pennsylvania. We developed a diagnostic criteria. We developed treatment guidelines. There's now one FDA-approved drug. And what I'm really excited about— That drug was the one you were taking? That's right. That didn't work for me. It ended up working for about a third of patients— but for patients, it didn't work for you, but and yet you survived. You survived because you did the seven agent chemo. Exactly. Right? But so what, it's basically there's this one drug and then the nuclear option. Exactly. But what I'm really excited about is that. So unfortunately, I went on to have a fifth, a fifth, a fifth one of these flares, and, and Caitlin, of course, was there with me throughout. But with number five, and I also approached death again when I got out of the hospital. Um, I dug into all the data I had generated over the previous year in the lab, and I did additional experiments on my samples, and I found a drug that I thought could help me. It was a drug that was developed for kidney transplantation 25 years ago, had never been used before for my disease, but I'd run out of options. Nothing was working. I couldn't continue to have these deadly relapses with with nuclear chemotherapy, basically. And um, back in February of 2014, um, when I was recovering from number five, I decided to start myself on this drug that would have never been used before for Castleman's, and it's now been five and a half years that I've been in remission on this drug. So I had five of these flares in the first three and a half years, none in the last five and a half years, and now we've gone on to start a clinical trial at the hospital that I work at to give this drug to other patients, other patients who don't get better on the approved drug. So this was a pre-existing drug, not a new drug that you, through your research, realized could be useful for Castleman's. Exactly. Five and a half years. Yeah. How confident are you that there are no more relapses in your future? I'm not confident at all. I I, I live knowing that it's been 67.7 months that I've been in remission, and then, and I realize I can't round up. I don't know if I'm going to make it to 68 months without a relapse, and and you know with the future. Um, but I'm grateful that this drug's gotten me this far, and so I run a research lab at UPenn where we're fully focused on identifying new treatments and a cure for this disease. And like I said, I don't know that this drug is it. I, I hope it is. But, but I also know that there's other patients who actually who don't benefit from the one FDA-approved drug, and they also don't benefit from this drug. So we need new options for these patients. Is that sort of sort of Damocles that's hanging over you, <laughs> is that terrifying or invigorating or both? I think that it's it's both, and I think that it's it's – it's terrifying, invigorating. It's also inspires action. So it makes me realize that um, I need to work all day, every day to advance research for this disease because it's not just a sword over my head. It's a sword over a lot of other people's head and heads. And, and I have the opportunity based on the laboratory I run, based on the work that I've done to really make a difference. And so it, it's motivated me. And, and I think that because I spend my time fighting this disease and trying to push forward the science, I know that if and when it does come back, that I won't have any regrets. I will have known that I did everything I could possibly do uh, to fight this disease. Do, do you, you know, how real is the progress? I mean, you're just one lab. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, is Big Pharma involved here? Like how, how, how much firepower is being brought to bear on this and how real is the progress? So we're, firepower-wise, we've invested about a million dollars over the last seven years into research, which, as you know, compared to a lot of other diseases, that's a, a drop in the bucket. 
but we've invested it really efficiently. And so those that million dollars into research has resulted in an additional $7 million from external funders, pharma, pharma academia, and also government funding. And so we're kind of making every dollar go as far as we can. And the way we do that is um, kind of a, a innovative or revolutionary approach to research where we don't raise money and then invite researchers to apply for it, which is kind of the, the typical way. You raise money and you invite doctors and researchers to say, you know, how will you use the money? We actually built this global community of physicians, researchers, and patients, and then we crowdsource the best ideas for what research should be done. And then we go out and we recruit new people who've never even heard of Castleman's before, new researchers to do Castleman's research. We find the best people in the world for a particular study, and then we give them funding and also samples. And that sort of approach of rather than like waiting and hoping for the right researcher at the right time to figure out what is the right work and going out and recruiting, we, we feel like that's really improved the efficiency of progress. And what's the state of play? I mean, how, how close do you think you are to either a cure or, or a new treatment? I think that we made a ton of progress, but I think that, you know, we have to see how this drug does in this clinical trial. We're going to give the drug I'm on to 24 other patients, and we're hopeful that it's going to work for a lot of them. But unfortunately, time's going to have to tell as to how durable this drug is um, for treating patients. I mean, it's been five and a half years for me, but like I said, I don't know if it's going to help me through the end of the month. So we're just constantly pushing forward science. We're constantly looking for other drugs, like we mentioned before, that might be approved for something else, but that might be able to help Castleman's patients. And I think this is a, a really important concept, bigger than Castleman's, and that's that there are 1,500 drugs already FDA approved for something, and there are 7,000 diseases that don't have any FDA approved drugs. So the really important question is how many of these 1,500 already FDA approved drugs might actually be treatments or cures for a disease that doesn't have any options? And, and this drug that I'm on that's saving my life, I think, is a great example of that. So, so we on the show we don't generally do medical mysteries. Uh, but the reason why I want to, and, and you're an unusual guest for that reason and also that you, you're not you're not yet really deep into meditation, although it sounds starting. like starting, you're starting. But what, why, why I slash we wanted to have you on is that the book is filled with a lot of uh, cer- meditation is a form of training the mind. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to train the mind. Mm-hmm. And you, as a consequence of this ordeal, have come up with ways to train your mind that I think are scalable to the rest of humanity. So I wanted to go through some of these. You, you, you mentioned one of them, which was uh, Think It, Do It. That's right. Can you just go back and say more about that? Sure, absolutely. So I think that um, in, in reading your most recent book, thinking about the, the naysayer that kind of lives in the back of your head and sometimes um, you know tells you not to do things or talks you out of things, that's a, a very kind of a, a real connection here with Think It, Do It, where sometimes we think about doing something, we want to tell someone how we feel about them, we want to do something for someone that we love, um, and somehow we talk ourselves out of it. And and so think it do it is to say that if you think about something that you want to do and you, and it's important to do, do it. Don't don't, you know, wait for this sometime in the future when time's right or or you'll have, you know, something's better. Do it. And and I think that this is a concept that I kind of had to go through having my last rites read to me and, and nearly dying. And this is after the third time I nearly died, where it just became so clear to me that um, that you need to live life recognizing that we're, we're kind of all in overtime. I, I've been using the analogy of overtime to describe what I've gone through and that, you know, I, I had this extra time that I didn't think I would have. But in overtime, every second counts. You know, you can have a bad play in the first quarter and you can make up for it. But in overtime, every second counts and you need to really live with clarity and purpose. And I think that there are so many parallels here but to, between in meditation when you can get to a state where you feel 
clarity and recognize that you can kind of see through the waterfall. And and so for here, and in my experience, it took nearly dying for me to get that experience. Um, but I think it's something that, as you said, could be scalable. So with Think It, Do It, you're, you've made clear in what I've read that it's not like, okay, so the voice in your head coughs up an <laughs> idea like, yeah, um, eat, you know, uh, 85 bags of Doritos or whatever. It's more like if you think it and then you use your innate wisdom to exactly. think, well, actually, no, 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 this – let, let's 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 muzzle the naysayer for a exactly. second. Then go for it. Exactly. That, that's exactly what it is. And in in line with that, and similarly, it, I, another um, kind of motto that I've taken out of this is to turn hope into action. And what I mean by that, related, is that oftentimes we hope for things in our life, we pray for things, we wish for things, um, and sometimes we stop after we hope, we pray, we wish, and we we kind of hope for those things to happen. But what I learned was that I hoped that someone would figure out a drug for me. I hoped that progress would be made. And I was even a medical student. I was, you know, kind of semi-prepared. But I hoped for the first almost three years that, 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 that someone else would do it for me. And then I realized that if I hoped for it and if I wanted it to happen, I needed to do it. And so I needed to say, if this is something I'm hoping for, something I'm praying for, that means it's important to me. And so if anything, that should drive my actions. That should make me say, I'm going to then do something about what I'm hoping for and I'm praying for. And, and the third one that I want to bring up is this concept of creating silver linings. So in life, when we go through tough times, we sometimes look for a silver lining. You know, what was something positive that came from a really tough experience? But what I've learned is sometimes even more powerful is to say, I'm going through a really tough time right now. What can I do? What can I create that would actually make this a positive? And I think what you've done with this podcast and also with meditation is a perfect example. You went through your own personal storm and difficult time, and you've created a silver lining. It, it, it wouldn't have been here. There wouldn't have been the silver lining you could have found, but you created this movement, and you're creating a silver lining out of the challenges that you went through. And you say, you think that's what you're trying to do with this book, Chasing My Cure, bring bringing awareness, not only you actually chasing the cure in the lab, but also bringing broader awareness to this disease? Absolutely. The suffering that I went through and my family went through with nearly dying five times and, and going through all these these difficult periods, if I can share some of those lessons with other people and they can inspire people to turn their hopes into action, that is a silver lining that wouldn't have been there without this book. Well, let's talk about keep keep going on the lessons. Mm -hmm. you, you, you've talked about overtime, which I think yeah. is a really compelling idea. But I just wonder, like, how able are you to sustain that urgency now five and a half years in? You know, I have not had my last rites read to me, but I've spent quite a bit of time in hospice and I do quite a bit of meditation where the and in, in, in the Buddhist tradition where you're really taught to contemplate death and the impermanence of everything. And yet I spent the last 24 hours literally worrying about something stupid. It's not, it's not thoroughgoingly stupid, but it's, it's not life or death. And it does take me away from, I'm not living in overtime. Okay. Are you able to really do that all the time to, to be, you know, sort of, present and feel the, you know, what Obama used to call the fierce urgency of now? Or do you fall back into getting caught up, as we all do, in, in nonsense? You know, I think that so far I have maintained this real sense of urgency. I think that, you know, every time I touch my chest, I feel the port that's below my skin that puts chemotherapy into my heart when I relapse. Um, you know, I, I feel scars in my neck from where I had, had catheters to give me dialysis. 
I, you know, sometimes take a deep breath and I feel some pain from the deep breath from the from my lungs from fibrosis from where fluid had accumulated. And so I look healthy and, and I generally feel healthy, but I'm constantly reminded with every deep breath I take. I'm constantly reminded every time you know I touch my shoulder that that there is a disease brewing below the surface. And and what I've also realized is there are many others with my disease that have a similar um, have a similar experience. And so I, I think that I maintain this focus, um, but I actually am really excited about using meditation and mindfulness to, to help, help me. Cause I imagine, you know, I, I never thought that I would have survived this long. You know, I'm, I'm now at nine years since my diagnosis. Most patients don't make it even close to as long as me. So I didn't think this needed to be a marathon. I thought this really was a sprint. Um, but because I sprinted so hard and I found a drug that's saving my life, now I need to maybe start thinking about it being more of a marathon. But but I also hesitate to say that because I found that every time I thought that maybe, a, you know, I'm in the clear, that's when this thing has come back. And so, you know, I, I'm trying to keep, you know, focus. And I, and I think mindfulness is is a tool that could act, could help someone like me. Uh, there's no question about yeah. it. And you may even look at the deep end of the pool, too, around Buddhism. You know, I mean, mindfulness is a, is a great technique for being more awake in the present moment, for lack of a less cliche term. And it's also a great technique for not being so yanked around by whatever emotions are swirling or random thoughts or urges. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the deep end, uh, the sort of exploring what Buddhism has to say, which, again, when I talk about Buddhism, I don't talk about it as a religion per Mm -hmm. se, although it certainly is practiced as one, but more like the practical techniques and philosophical views of the Buddha, if he existed, or whoever was right, whoever said all the stuff that he's purported to have said, is incredibly interesting. And there's there's a lot in there about death, yeah, you know, because that nobody gets out of here alive. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember there's a quote in your in your most recent book about how I think you said um, Buddhism is not something you believe in; it's something you do. Yeah, and um, and I I, I, I didn't say to that, that, but I stole it from somebody. <laughs> I connected to that because I think so much of my book and what I'm I'm sharing and trying to share with the world is that a lot of things get trapped inside of us in some things we think about and hope for, um, and then some, they never get done. And and I think that what I learned from having my last rites read to me and with each of my dear death, death experiences is that it's the doing, the things that you get to do and you get to say that you really. F- they're powerful to you when when you say goodbye. It's the things you didn't do or you didn't say why you were here. And so I think this idea of you know things that you think about, things that you hope for, you pray for, thinking about how do you turn those into action and make them something that you did in your life so you don't look back on your deathbed and say, I wish I did this. I wish I said this. Yeah, it reminds me of um, I've been doing a story on a mom in Mexico who – Mexico, they have this massive crisis of – drug violence and there are I think at a minimum 40,000 unsolved disappearances and uh, the government has not until recently they're starting to get better but they haven't done much of the looking for the bodies or even trying to solve the cases and so I met a mom down there who we've been profiling whose son was a DJ and she was a college professor anyway he went missing wasn't even connected to the drug trade and she has been leading the charge to find him and she's f- gathered all these other moms and they literally go out and they gather tips and like dig and find and they found mass graves. Wow. It's pretty incredible. And yeah. I remember she said something to me. Uh, she speaks perfect English as it happens so we can communicate pretty clearly. She said something to me like 
never turn down an opportunity to spend time with your family. Wow. And uh, it <laughs> has been the source of some guilt for me because there mm-hmm. are times when like, yeah, I have to do absolutely. work or whatever. Yeah. But it is on my, you know, like in the last couple of weeks, for example, I blew off work quite a bit uh, to spend time with my family because they were at the beach and I wanted to, so I would leave the city and go. To, and and it, it has, it has, um, it's the wisdom that people who have, gone through something horrible can pass on to the rest of us. She has done for me what you are trying to do through this book. Do you think does that sound right to you? It does. I think that what she said to you and the message she's sharing is so important. Also the message of what she's doing to try to, you know, to solve these these murders, to find these mass graves. Mm-hmm. She hoped that someone would do it and at some point she realized that she had to, you know, stop hoping and start acting. Right. And I think right. that I think these are both such important lessons and and you know what you said um, about your family, something I struggle with as well. I now have uh, Caitlin and I. We we got married, and we now have a one year old daughter, amazing. Amelia. She turned a one year uh, last week, and so I struggle because I'm in this position where um, the more that I work, the closer I get to answers and solutions, and maybe even a long life um, with with my family. But the Less I work, the more I get to spend time with them in the short term. And so I have this constant balance, which is, you know, if I work harder, I might be able to spend time with them longer versus right. short term. That's tough. It's really How do you tough. deal with that? It, it's really tough. I think that um, I try to make the time that I'm with my family so – I try to make it really count and make sure that I'm fully present when I'm there and make sure that um, that basically what I do is either, you know, work towards a cure – or spend time with the people that I love and, and try to get rid of all other distractions. Uh, one other thing Lucy said to me, the Mexican mom, was that she she went through a period after her son. She doesn't know that he's dead, but she's pretty sure he is. She went mm-hmm. through a horrible period of depression and you know had trouble getting out of bed. And then she started to get energized around looking for him and trying to you know browbeat the not very energetic police to do something about it. And then what really energized her was creating this network of other moms. Mm-hmm. And she, she described how she basically is not living for herself anymore, which I hear echoes of that. I found it when she said it to me, be very powerful that she has in some ways, in some ways that actually gives her a sense of lightness transcended the self do you do, does that resonate with you? One hundred percent. You know, the, the my book's called Chasing My Cure, but it's not my cure that I'm chasing. It's it's our cure, and it, it's it's our in the sense of Castleman's patients, but it's also in the sense of any rare disease patient who might have a disease without a, a solution, and there might be a drug for them. And so that sort of purpose, it, it, you know, started out personal, and then when all of a sudden you can make it bigger than you know what you're personally going going through, it, it adds so much power and energy and. Um, you could think that that could kind of like weigh weigh you down and make you feel, um, you know, like you have this you know heavy burden. But it, it's really, I, I think, I think it, it it does add you know life and energy um, to, to to anyone going through that. The other parallel, which which I which really resonates with me, is so I lost my mom to cancer while I was in college. I, she was diagnosed just before my freshman year, and. I really struggled with her illness and death. And, and just before she passed away, I promised her I would create an organization in her memory to help other grieving college students. 
And I didn't know what that was going to be or what it would become. And it really was for me at first. It was like my own grief. I want to find other people that I can connect with. But again, the same sort of thing. Once this network started spreading around the country and now there's there's chapters all over the country, I found that connecting with and supporting and, and making my mom's legacy, her, her initials, her, her name was Anne-Marie Fagenbaum and her initials were AMF, the organization's actively moving forward, so also AMF. And the idea that her life is helping people and that AMF is supporting people now 15 years after she's passed away gives me so much satisfaction and helps me with, with really challenging grief that I dealt with. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it kind of in Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about the self being the source of our suffering, mm. that, and, it, and that, that the self is an illusion, that we, we have this primordial illusion that there's some David back mm. there between your eyes. There isn't. Um, and what emerges from this illusion is greed, because you want, David wants mm-hmm. stuff, hatred, because David has rivals, or David has people who drive down the road, he doesn't like the way they're <laughs> driving, and confusion about what we really are and who we really are. And what I, what I you know, that, that's pretty heavy stuff. I think a way to put it that I think would be much more relatable is that focusing too much on yourself doesn't feel good. Self-centeredness mm. yep. doesn't feel good. And even when you're in a horrible situation, like you were when your mother died or uh, when you had last rites read to you five times or when Lucy lost her son, there's something actually liberating. And that's yes. a big word, but I think it's true. When you aren't so focused on the self and you are in, and you're outwardly focused and your life becomes bigger than just your desire for a donut. I, t- I totally agree. I think I think that's the exa- exactly the way to describe it. Liberating. It's that you know you sometimes you go through life thinking that there's certain things you have to do that maybe is good for your you know good for you and and you just kind of go through the slog of life. Um, but I think that you know when you have a, a life event, whether it's a death or or a serious illness yourself, it helps to kind of focus you on the things that are really important. For me, it's my work and it's the people that I love and. All the other stuff, the people who drive bad, you know, badly down the street, that, that doesn't bother me. It's about, you know, it's the things that are so critical because all that other stuff doesn't matter when you're, when you're on your deathbed. Let's just go back to overtime, yeah. the idea of, you know, every second counts. One of the things you talked about was it's, it's easy for you to remember yeah. because all you have to do is put your hand on your heart or, yep. or take a deep breath, yeah. which you're probably doing even more than <laughs> putting your hand on your heart, and you feel it. Uh, and that jives with something that I talk about on the show a lot, which is that through meditation or through Buddhism or Eastern spirituality or any spirituality, we we are we hear a lot of inspiring stuff. Yeah. But we are programmed for denial. We're programmed to forget that we're going to die and to be super focused on the next donut or the next yeah. sandwich or the next movie or whatever. We for good reason because on the savannah we survived by mm-hmm. finding food and sexual partners and avoiding the saber toothed tiger. So mm-hmm. that's how we have this voice in our head. So we need to be reminded. And in fact, the original translation of the word mindfulness in its ancient in, in the ancient Indian language of Pali, the word was sati. That word means recollecting. Mm. So remembering that you're in overtime is incredibly powerful. It is the game. Yes. This may be an impossible question for you to answer, but is there a way that the rest of us can remember that we're all effectively in overtime? We don't know it, but we are. 
I, so you're right. I think that is a hard question to answer, but but I think that it, it's through hearing stories from from people like you and I. It's from hearing um, from uh, your your friend who who is sharing her story about what she le- has learned through her life. I think that if you can kind of put yourself in those shoes and say, you know what, I see where they're coming from. I get it. Hear these stories. I, I think that you can kind of like kind of store those memories away. And remember that, you know, we're, we are all in overtime. Like I said before, early on, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in overtime. You know, every second counts. And then and then I started realizing, no, we are all in overtime. You know, none of us know how long, how much time we have. And and I made the, the comment earlier, you know, in the first quarter, you can have a bad play. You can make up for it. But the reality is, is none of us are in the first quarter. You know, we're, we're all in overtime. And, and so we need to live like we're in overtime. And that doesn't mean to be afraid of every move. In fact, it should be liberating that. I have to make the right move and, and, and I'm going to you know, make the most of every second that I have. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. to mind the wisdom of Fagenbaum here. Um, <laughs> another thing uh, you, another sort of technique that you've come up with post-diagnosis yep. is your 40-minute walk to work in the morning and how it's, it has a meditative component. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for me, it's, um, it's the walk to and the, and the walk home. It's, uh, it's my chance to, to start to kind of, when I'm going into work, to to start getting into a mindset that, that's ready for a full day. And in my evenings when it's coming back, it's getting ready to move from that that work world, trying to cure my disease, to trying to make every second count with, with my wife and my daughter. And so it's kind of like my reset um, in both directions, you know, moving from, as I said before, I have this, you know, almost like kind of polar challenges where it's, you know, spend, be there present with my family that I love, but also drive forward science so I can be with my family in the future. And so I, I think for me, I have to really – it's hard for me to break in and break out. So I need that 40-minute walk to, to break from, you know, kind of one, one David to the other. Yeah, so f- what I hear there, and you just tell me if I'm right, is like the – this is a, a bit of a grandiose term, <laughs> but this kind of – we need rituals. Yeah. You know, we need, we need to take care of ourselves. It's mm-hmm. a kind of self-care, which yep. is a little bit of a – annoyingly uh, <laughs> uh, in vogue term right now, but we need to, we need to have moments of reflection, taking care of ourselves and moving skillfully and thoughtfully from one phase of our life, 
one mode, we're in a professional to personal mode, and this helps you do that. Does that sound like an accurate sum- summation? That's exactly right. And and I've kind of been, I guess maybe by, by trial and error, I figured out ways to to make it work better or, or, or worse <laughs> along the way. But I, I actually am pretty excited about being able to start to introduce some mindfulness practices. And I just I, I've been kind of going going on the fly um, with those forty minute periods, and I'm. I'm excited that my sister, I was sharing with you earlier, my sister told me about this podcast and, and about you. Um, and so I'm excited to start int- introducing some of those into that 40-minute walk. And I'll have to tell you how it goes. Clearly, your sister is the brain. The <laughs> that's family. exactly um, right. I think that's a great idea. I really do. I, I'm not going to tell you. I, I think clearly whatever you're doing is working So uh, just based on being in the room with you. Um, but what is there? There's some Zen expression Everything is perfect, but it can use a little improvement. So Absolutely. I'm sure your walk could, could be improved by that. Do let me know how it I goes. Another, another thing that you found to be really helpful, and this may seem obvious, but I think it's hard for people to do in extremis when, when things are bad, is humor. Uh, uh, specifically, apparently, Borat. Um, <laughs> so t- talk to me about the importance of humor. Sure. So uh, I found, um, both going all the way back to, to my mom's illness and then also through my own, um, just how critical humor can be. Um, I'll sh- share a couple examples. So my mom uh, had, had brain cancer, and when she went in for her first surgery, um, we didn't know if she would emerge the same person as before, as before, before the surgery. And when the doctor told us we could go back to see her in the waiting area, we were all so scared. You know, who, you know, is this going to be our mom when we go back there? Um, a large portion of her brain was taken out. And when we got back and they opened up the curtain, she had a wrap around her head and she had a, a bulb coming out uh, where some fluid was collecting. And she looked at us and she said, Chiquita Banana Lady. <laughs> and we burst into tears. We laughed so hard. You know, we didn't know. And this this is our mom. This is who she is. And, and she – she was saying that because she knew we needed that. And so we needed the humor to say, oh, my gosh, our mom's with us. And so fast forward um, several years and, and then, you know, here I am uh, uh, in the hospital. Um, I just spent almost six months hospitalized now. I'd almost died three times and I'd gotten the seven agent chemotherapy. So now I'm feeling better. It's kind of crazy to say, but the chemo actually made me feel better every dose of chemo because I was so sick before. And it was New Year's Eve of 2010. And uh, that evening, my dad decided to go for a walk around the hematology oncology floor. And we passed a gentleman who was kind of swaying in his chair. He looked like he'd been drinking too much on New Year's Eve. And on our next lap around, we saw that he had fallen to the floor. And so my dad helped him back up into his chair. And he looked at my dad and I, and he said, thanks so much. Good luck to you and your wife. And I kind of looked around. I said, wife, what's he talking about? And I looked at my belly. (laughs) He thought I was my dad's pregnant wife walking around to deliver our child. And so I turned to my dad. I said, man, you've got an ugly wife. <laughs> but we laughed so hard. And you could imagine that that could have gone, you know, a couple of different ways. It could have gone, oh, my gosh, this guy thinks that I'm my dad's pregnant wife. This is terrible. You know, life is awful. And life was pretty awful at that time. But I'd learned from my mom that in the midst of really tough times and literally facing death, sometimes humor can actually help us to get through these really tough times. Yeah, I mean, there was also you, you said some friends played you some some Sasha Baron Cohen videos in the hospital. Yeah, so so Sasha Baron Cohen is, I think he is the funniest person in the world. He is my... my well, I, second to David <laughs> Chappelle, but fair enough. He, I think he's hilarious. And, and the Sasha Baron Cohen, my, my affinity for him actually goes also back to when my mom was ill. Um, 
though I could laugh when I was with her, I actually, when I was back at college, I always felt guilty being too happy while she was going through what she was going through. I felt guilty laughing. And I was with my best friend, Ben, and um, Sasha Baron Cohen's TV show came on and Borat, the Borat character came on in this period where I like, didn't want to laugh. Mm. And I just burst into tears in laughter because I thought he was like the funniest person, this, you know, faux Kazakhstani mm-hmm. television reporter. And from that moment, Borat has become like the person that I, or the character that, you know, that, that makes me laugh more than anyone else can. And so exactly when when I recovered and I was back to medical school, um, my friends put together kind of a celebration that I was back and somehow through friends or friends um, they were able to get Sasha Baron Cohen to make a two-minute video for what? me. Wow. It was incredible about um, and he he was so funny he actually called me the wrong name a couple times during the video. <laughs> he called me Jonathan a couple times and he told he said Jonathan I mean Dave um, I can understand what you're going through because last week I went through five boxes of tissues with a really really bad cold. <laughs> and I was like this is so awesome. Um, so he's he's a, a real hero of mine. Funny, you know, my my dad's been having some health problems, and mm. like literally just last night, he, he landed in the hospital, and oh, no. and I, we, my brother and I, found out, and we we had a we kind of did a video call, my me and my brother and my mom, and we could see my dad in in the in the bed, and he could understand us, um, and we were joking, you know, yeah. uh, I don't know if it's you know maybe a Jewish cultural thing in part, but I think a lot of people do it, yeah. and yeah, I mean, it was a mixture of concern and yes. love but also our love language in the exactly. family is you know verbal abuse yeah. so uh, and it wasn't directed at him it was directed mostly at me frankly um <laughs> but n- nonetheless um yeah what did my brother say we, we we're talking to my dad about how his 50th his and my mom's 50th anniversary is coming up and he was kind of able to kind of articulate that there would be a lot of kids there for the thing and um and my brother said, yeah, a lot of small Harrises, including Dan. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, yes. And that, and I, I, so I do think it's – if it can feel wrong in a yeah. way, but it also is – I mean, you, you would know better than anybody yeah. as the patient yes. in that situation. I got the sense that my dad was buoyed by the lightness. Absolutely. I, I think that I didn't fully appreciate it when I was the loved one. I, I knew my mom made that joke to make us happy, and there were many – um, times where she did that, and I knew it was really more for me. Um, but when I was in that position, I, I realized just how powerful and how helpful it is. Because when you're the patient, you feel guilty that everyone's you know stopped their life to be around you, and they're 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 with you. And it's typically pretty sad and grim. So anytime you can get them laughing, get them smiling, it it is so special. My wife had the best line of our entire marriage. Uh, she was about to have a double mastectomy, and, uh, and she's fine now. Good. And uh, she kind of looked at me and then looked down into her hospital gown and then looked back at me and said, say goodbye to your little friend. <laughs> <laughs> Scarface reference. That's awesome. Yes. So I do think I, – I, I think humor is incredibly important. Um, another thing you talk about, continuing with the, the wisdom of David um, or Jonathan, uh, <laughs> is uh, the that moment with eating a hamburger. Yeah. So you were pretty – it sounds like you were pretty hard on yourself about your diet. And so you allowed yourself to have a hamburger, which seems 
simple, but is actually quite revelatory. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, before I became ill, I was um, a Division One football player, played quarterback at Georgetown. I was also a personal trainer, and exercise and health wow. was was everything to me. That, that's what, while I was in college. And um, I even I did a, a public health degree at Oxford focused on cancer prevention with a particular focus on diet and exercise in, the, in relation to cancer prevention um, before medical school. And um, so I, I, I like I talk about in the book, I hadn't had ground meat, a hamburger in a decade. I hadn't had chicken without peeling the skin off of the chicken in a decade. And I lived this life of kind of like. I'm, I hyper focus on things and, and I kind of don't ever snap out of it. And so, you know, I, I ate healthy always. I, I never broke out of it. Never had a cheat day. Never cheated. And so for, for about a decade, from the time I was 15 to 25, I was wow. just crazy focused on exercise and health. And for me, it was I wanted to play college football. And then when I was playing college football, I wanted to be as best as I could. Do you think it was – do you think that was entirely healthy? Uh, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, would you put it in the category of eating disorder or disordered thinking around you know, eating I, or I body that, dysmorphia? You know, I think it was um, – it's kind of how I'm kind of wired. In your book, you talk about a friend of yours who's hyper-focused. So I actually – I was diagnosed with ADD, the hyper-focused variant from the uh, time I was a child. And so so when I focus on something, whether it's curing Castleman disease or creating a network in memory of my mom or – playing college football, I kind of do everything to get towards that goal. And so this was kind of one of those steps. And so, um, and of course, then I spent six months almost dying in the hospital with a disease that is kind of like a cancer, kind of like an autoimmune disease. And I got out of the hospital and I talked about the concept of think it, do it and how, um, how, you know, maybe it's okay to, as you said, maybe it's actually healthy to maybe break out and to not live such like kind of a structured, focused life and that it's actually better. And so, yeah, I remember one of the thoughts that I had when I was in the airport coming back from this last hospitalization um, was, you know, a hamburger sounds pretty good. And it was really, really good. <laughs> and as you said, it's not that, you know, it's not uh, this crazy philosophical concept of eating a hamburger. But, but for me, it was just this idea that, you know, life is short and, um, you know, eating so perfectly healthy and exercising all the time you know, didn't prevent in me a serious disease, not saying that it, do, it isn't so important for health and well-being, um, but that maybe we don't have control over everything and that we should um, embrace the uncertainty of life a bit. So where are you now with, you know, hamburgers? <laughs> I love hamburgers. <laughs> and so you, uh, because you're a yeah. slim, healthy looking dude, so you allow yourself are you Absolutely. peeling your chicken still, or like? No, I, I remember, I, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Okay. <laughs> it's kind well, of more of a middle ground, well, that, right? So, so that seems I mean, the, the, to go back to the Buddha who I keep quoting, which is probably annoying. But anyway, the middle way is yes. the thing. It's the middle way between indulgence and uh, being a monk is to you know once in a while you don't yes. peel your chicken exactly. And I, I think that that's really for me, you know. It was almost dying that gave me that sort of revelation, and and I've been able to live that way since then. It's that you know maybe life isn't always black or white. Maybe where we really should be is in that, in that gray area, and we should really embrace it and and feel comfortable in that gray area. Okay, the final thing I want to explore in terms of what I can see as the sort of um, scalable nuggets that you gleaned through this ordeal is uh, uh again I don't know I can't think of any other way to say this that isn't going to sound a little uh you know hallmarky but uh love yeah. is a, a a big deal to state the blazingly obvious but um what did you learn about love 
I so first off, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I learned that love and support and and the people that are your friends and your family they can provide something that and a strength that you just can't have on your own. There's, I, you know, we were talking about earlier, kind of the you know inward versus outward, and and I think that those people around you that you love, whether it's my sisters, my dad, Caitlin, now my my daughter Amelia, they provide such an important source of strength when you're going through difficult times, both helping you get through the difficult times, but also motivating you and inspiring you to 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 make sure that you do everything you can so you can you can be with them for a long time. I think that um, you know my experience with with nearly dying um, each time, it it really helped to focus in that. Like I said, I spend my time on working for a cure and with the people I love, and I think that um, that experience helps you to focus in on those are the things that you know your purpose and your people are the most important things in the world. If you were in Caitlin's position, would you have would you have thrown your lot in with somebody who might be dying? And what what is to be learned from the leap she made? So I would like to think that that I would. I, I think all of us would hope that you know we would kind of transcend and think beyond you know the physical and the fear of disease. Um, but I think that she's really a hero for the fact that she was able to to look beyond um, you know the fact that I you know looked like my dad's pregnant wife at the time and I was <laughs> bald and um, you know looked beyond that and. Um, but also made me feel like like it really was genuine, and I think that um, you know that was just the start of it. And then I went on and I nearly died two more times. And during the the last one, um, I had such low platelets that I was at constant risk of a, a fatal brain bleed, and that I would die really at any moment. Um, and in order to prevent that, I needed to get platelet transfusions, and they needed to be shipped in from uh, another state to be matched to my my particular type. And so every day um, these platelets would get sent in and every day they needed to um, to blunt my fevers. They needed to put ice packs all over my body to get my fevers down so I could get the platelets because you can't get platelets if you're in the midst of having a fever, you'll reject them. And so I remember I had this distinct memory of the fifth time I almost died watching Caitlin with the nurse and they're putting packs of ice all over my body and I'm mostly in and out of consciousness and not really knowing what's going on. But But here she is like physically, you know, getting me in a place to be able to, you know, get these life-saving platelets. And, and fortunately, I didn't have that brain bleed. I didn't die. I survived. Um, but it's little memories like that, that that sometimes come up when I see her with my daughter, Amelia, and I'm just like sitting next to her on the couch watching TV. And and those are, are memories. Um, and they're such special moments that not all of us get to have with the ones that we love and uh, certainly not at, at our young age. And I think having gone through that with her makes makes life so much more special. She in there? She's right over there. You want to come in here, Caitlin? You want to come in? Yes. Uh, she doesn't want to, but she's doing it anyway. <laughs> come on Here's in. Caitlin. Hi. Sorry. To I, didn't, I didn't get you too emotional in there, did I? Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? No, sure. Okay. So I just – you're sitting next to this guy. You guys had broken up. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, really sick. And I forget the, how he looked. That I don't think is the issue. But you don't know if he's even going to be around. And I'm just projecting myself in your shoes. I could imagine having a cocktail of thoughts like, does he want to get back together because he's really vulnerable and weak and lonely? 
if I get back together with him, is he going to die? If I don't, am I going to live with regret that I hurt this dying person? And also, if I don't, am I going to regret because maybe he, he was the love of my life? Is that an accurate description of what was going through your head? Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of things that go through your head um, where you guys had talked about it before, feeling that sense of guilt. I don't think I felt that sense of guilt to get back together with him. I just felt that um, that I loved him. I wanted to be with him. I couldn't imagine my life without him. And so um, I was ready. Even though you'd broken up. Yeah. I feel like we're broken up and... I received um, a caring bridge message saying that he, that David had taken a turn for the worse. So I went to the hospital to go see him, and um, I knew that no matter what, I wanted him in my life. I didn't know how. I didn't know if we were going to get back together. I just wanted him back in my life, and I wanted to work on that relationship. And if we did get back together, then we would take that that next step and and figure things out. But um, I was willing to take that next step. And you were willing to take the next step. Mm-hmm even though you didn't know if he was going to be around to keep taking steps. Yes. Yeah. Why? I don't know. It's a really hard question. Um, I don't know. I need to think about this. I'm not sure. I think partly because you're just an amazing person and wanted to um, for yourself, uh, make sure that you're doing what was right. But I think you also, you know, you really cared about me. I think, I mean, here I am putting words into Caitlin's mouth. But I, I think that, yeah, I mean, what we didn't talk about earlier was that the first time Caitlin came to see me in the hospital and I, and when I said goodbye to family and friends, I actually told my sisters that I didn't want her, Caitlin, to see me like that. Uh-huh. And so they actually stopped her in the lobby and said, David doesn't want you to see him. And so I turned her away. And, and in, in hindsight, I, I regret that. I wish I hadn't done that. But um, I remembered that some of my final memories of my mom kind of were burned into my head. And, um, of course, I remember all the good times with her. But I didn't want those final mute being that sick to be what was burned into Caitlin's head. Because even though we weren't together, she was the love of my life. Right. And I did that again with my second episode. And she came down to North Carolina to see me when I was hospitalized. And, again, I, I turned her away. Um, and so it was the third time when when we got back together, um, and it was it was kind of like, you know, she was just proving or showing that this is something that that really meant a lot to her. And let me guess at what the answer is, but you tell me if I'm right because I don't know if I'm right. But it's Huey Lewis to be annoying about it. It's like <laughs> the power of love. That uh, what else are we here for? You know, and it sounds to me like. Whether you were conscious of, or, uh, of it or not, you were like, well, what what else am I here to do other than be in love with somebody and and live like that? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. But it was a big, it was a big, big move. Mm-hmm. So I respect it. Thank you. Thank you. I respect it. What do you think is, for people listening to this who may not have life circumstances that are as dramatic as yours – What do you think you've taken out of this that could be, you know, usable and operationalizable, if that's even a word for regular folks who are living more humdrum lives like me? I think that you just – I thought a lot about the bigger picture and I think what you're saying about love is that it is this 
this bigger picture. And so I just um, just thought about our life that we could have and how and how we could be together, how we could start a family. And so I thought more about the bigger picture than I did about each individual step with him of of him of getting him better. And I mean, I did think about getting him better, but um, I definitely thought more about the bigger picture of love. Uh, my meditation teacher has a little thing that, that when you're kind of thinking about your life or any decision, uh, 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 a useful phrase to bring to mind is what matters most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I definitely resonate with that. And what matters most is David and my family and our, now our daughter and everything else doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's just hard. I just, I'm just thinking. I was saying to David earlier that the last 24 hours I've been worrying about something, which, mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of thing, things, I know isn't that big, that big of a deal, and yet it just keeps popping into my mind, even while my dad is sick. You know, yeah. and I feel some like shame about that. But like, that's the way the mind works. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep what matters most in your mind all the time, and that's why having these kinds of conversations. I'll just say for myself, it's useful to be reminded. It's useful to be reminded. Thank you for letting me drag you in here. I know we didn't <laughs> give you, you any warning. It's okay. You're a good I'm happy sport. to do it. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything I should have asked you but that I didn't ask, David? No, I think that we, we really covered everything. I think that, um, you know, as Caitlin said, we now have this uh, one-year-old beautiful daughter, Amelia. Uh, and, and, and something that she was mentioning too is that so much of, of my illness and, and, and nearly dying – I, I thought about the future and kind of, as Caitlin said, like what could be, you know, we, Caitlin and I could be married. We could, you know, have a family together. And that was kind of like the dream that I think kept me motivated and helped me to fight through each of these, these relapses. And, and now we have, you know, now we are married. Now we do have a, a daughter together. And, and now it's, it's kind of keeping this dream going is what really motivates me to, to keep working every day. And, and I hope that this ex- example of, you know, someone who's, nearly died several times, who's gone through so many health challenges. I hope that this can be inspiring to other people that are also going through health challenges, that, that sometimes that vision in the, in the future that maybe we didn't know that we would ever see but we hoped for can actually become reality. And, and hopefully that can inspire other people to, to start to turn those hopes and those, those dreams and prayers into reality. Yeah, me too. And I hope that your health continues to be strong. Thank and you. I hope um, Amelia continues to be strong too. <laughs> Um, thank you, guys. Uh, before we go, though, can you just tell people where, if they want to learn more about you, obviously the book, again, Chasing My Cure, David Fagenbaum. It's spelled F-A-G-J-G-E-N-B-A-U-M. But are there websites for the Organization for College Kids Dealing with Grief or for with Castleman's that people should know about? That's right, yeah. So the group for grieving college students is, is called AMF, and HealGrief.org is the website for AMF actively moving forward. There's also um, for the Castleman Disease Network, the work that we're doing um, to try to cure Castleman disease and also create a, a blueprint and a path forward for curing many more rare diseases. It's called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and our website, cdcn.org. Of course, you know, so grateful for any support of our work and our mission. Um, and then uh, to learn more about the book, there's a website now for the book called chasingmycure.com where you can hear, read a little bit more about some parts of the book that maybe didn't make it in, see photos from the befores and afters. Excellent. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. You're a good sport. Thank you. Again, big thanks to David. Uh, his book, Chasing My Cure, just came out last week. 
If you want to learn more about his story, go check that out. And we've got links to it in our show notes. Uh, let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. Uh, big fan of the show. Quick question. I am in the middle of a divorce and I'm struggling with some personal demons of my own. I've been wanting to get a meditation practice started. Uh, but at this point, I am afraid of the thoughts and the feelings that are going to come up. So I was just curious if this is a matter of Will and me just making a leap and getting getting it going, or if there are some suggestions that you have for me to get a practice started. Again, huge fan of the show. Um, thank you for what you're doing, and I appreciate you taking the call. Take care. Thanks for making the call. Thanks for talking about what is clearly difficult stuff for you. Um, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I, um, in my experience. Difficult things can come up in meditation, and I think it's fair for you to be concerned about that. I'll say, though, that in my experience, it's better. I have not endured a divorce, but plenty of other um, you know, ups and downs. In my experience, it's better to deal forthrightly and see clearly all of my difficult thoughts and urges and emotions within the container of meditation rather than having it kind of stewing in the background of my psyche and driving my actions in a way that is kind of blind and reflexive. So I I think the upside is clear, but I'm not going to lie to you and say that the the process won't be difficult. Because I I wanted to make sure I really gave you good advice, we we also reached out to uh, Ray Hausman, who's the head of uh, the coaches on the 10% Happier app. We have this incredible cadre of of coaches who are experienced meditators who are right there to answer your questions. If you're a subscriber, if you go to your profile page on the app, you can go look up your coach and send her or him questions, and they'll answer them as long as you want to ask them. And Ray uh, is a very experienced meditator, and her, having heard your question, she, she agrees with me that you're right to have some concern, and, and it's wise to want to – sort of protect yourself as you dip your toes into these particular waters. She, she uh, latched onto this notion that you you asked, is this a matter of will? Uh, sh- her response was that it's probably best not to approach this practice from a place of will. That You w- kind of want to do it slowly with care, self-care, as the millennials say, so that you can build confidence over time. A couple practical pieces of advice she passed along that I, I agree with. One is – at the beginning, at least, you might want to try sitting for short periods of time, maybe just five minutes a day, so that you can grow that confidence and interest uh, slowly. And the other thing is that that she recommended is that walking meditation can be a good way to to practice when you're in distress because the attention gets directed in a little bit more of an external direction rather than um, in, a, in an external way rather than having it so focused internally. Uh, and if you go to the on-the-go section on our singles tab in the app, you'll find great guided walking meditations. Hang in there, man. I'm, this sounds like a really difficult time. I do think meditation can help, but I also think you're right to want to approach it carefully. Let's do voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. This is Lisa. I am a podcast insider as well as a 10% Happier app subscriber and user. My question is... During all the guided meditations, 
the teachers never give the option of lying down, except, of course, in some of the sleep meditations. Why is that? Is it because people are more prone to falling asleep if they're lying down? You know, it's always talked about sitting up straight. As a mom of three, the only time that I can be alone is right before bed. And so for the last several years, I've meditated right before bed, and I do so in my bed, lying down. As a former yogi, that's what I know at the end of class. So my question is, why can't lying down be okay? Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Well, first of all, thank you for being a Podcast Insider, just for the uninitiated. You may have heard me talk about this before, but Podcast Insiders are volunteers who give up their time to give us insights and response and feedback uh, to our podcast episodes so that we can do a better job. And it's actually enormously helpful. So thank you for that. I also have so much, I don't know what the right word is. Empathy may be the right word, but I don't know that I can fully empathize with what it's like to be a mom. I live with one, but there are lots of pressures and stresses that I'm sure I I can't even imagine. Uh, So if you are actually keeping up a semi-regular meditation practice while being a mom, and in your case, a mom of three, that's awesome. So I I hope you're not in some sort of cycle of wondering whether you're doing it right, because let me just say from the outset that you're doing it at all is a big deal. The rest of what I'm going to have to say is also encouraging for, you know, I, I may have mentioned this in the podcast before, but if I if my memory serves, there were four traditional postures postures from way back in the day when the Buddha was talking about meditation. Um, one is the traditional sitting posture, which is quite familiar to all of us. The other is standing, then walking, which we just talked about a few moments ago, and then lying down. So there's nothing wrong with lying down to meditate. Uh, it's been right there in the in the documentation and the scriptures from the beginning. So no, no worries. The, well, the one reason why I think we generally teach meditation on the app and, and on our app and on other apps, uh, and if you go to a meditation teacher, the way, the reason why I think often it's taught in a seated posture is that's a good combination of being somewhat relaxed while also being alert. And the, the fear with lying down is that it will turn into an unintentional nap. But according to Ray, the aforementioned Ray Hausman, if you're able to sustain your attention without falling asleep uh, and lying down is the way you prefer to practice, then go for it. You know, the other thing that Ray mentioned is that you may want to experiment with other postures if you get a minute or two throughout the day. Maybe there's like little cracks in your schedule where you can do a sitting or a standing or a, a walking meditation. That might be something to experiment with. But I think the bottom line is I don't think you need to worry about the fact that your practice at right now and perhaps in perpetuity consists of lying meditations, especially if it's not making you fall asleep. Although having said that, we do on the app, as you mentioned, do a lot of meditations that guide people into falling asleep. And if that's your only practice, that too is great. I mean, I'm I'm really of the view, this is just me talking here, that more practice is better than less practice. And I think being overly dogmatic about when and where and how to do it can be counterproductive. So keep going. Um, Thank you again for being a podcast insider. I really appreciate it. I want to thank everybody involved with putting this show together. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Mike Dubusky, who always operates the boards when uh, I come in and record the intros and outros on on Saturday mornings. 
And I just want to tell you two things. One is next week, after three years of being a podcast, we finally have Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher, on the show. This has been long delayed, but we, we got him. So, and it's a it's a long one and a great one. So stick around for that. And uh, an ask before we go. I know every podcast host asks for this, but I really mean it. If you can uh, take a minute to share the show with friends, either, you know, just one-on-one or on social media, we love that. It helps us grow, which we want to keep doing. I will see you next week with Joseph. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.